Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. It is a pleasure to be here. You know, I um, God's providence is amazing. When you look back at the history and you see what he does and how he gets you here, I just, before I, I get in the sermon, I want to tell you this because I found it out last night. Um, I, I messaged my previous pastor, a man by the name of Scott Wright. This was uh, over a decade ago. And he went to call to Gordon Conwell with Steve McGee. Okay, which you all know was a ruling elder here. Well, I actually had found out that he and his wife attended CPC as well when T. David Gordon was here. So at, at any rate, there's some connections even in a pastor, you know, who 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 you know, are ruling elder here, uh, friends at college and then that. So I, as I looked through that story, I was like, wow, Lord, this is kind of quite amazing as the, the pieces come together. Well, I am glad to be here. And I'm glad to be serving you. I'm glad to have been called uh, by you and by the Presbytery and by the Lord Jesus Christ to shepherd uh, this flock. And so I am very glad to be here. I want to, uh, I was thinking about, you know, what do, what do you preach for kind of the first official sermon while you're here? Um, and one of the things that I know at the, is at the heart of this body is to see unity and have peace. And so what I uh, what I thought would be best this morning would be to um, preach through Psalm 122. And then beginning next week, I'm going to do a short sermon series, four sermons uh, called Terrifying Delight uh, from Psalm 139. And so that's what's, what's to come. All right. So a member of a certain church who previously had been attending services regularly stopped going. After a few weeks, the pastor decided that he was going to pay a visit uh, to the man, and the pastor went to his house on a chilly evening, found the man at home alone, sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for his pastor's visit, the man welcomed him, led him to a big chair near the fireless fireplace, and waited. The pastor made himself comfortable, but said nothing. In the grave silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs, and after some minutes, the pastor took the fire tongs, carefully picked up a brightly burning ember, and placed it to one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in his chair, still saying nothing. The host watched all of this in quiet fascination. As the one lone ember's flame diminished, there was a momentary glow and then its fire was no more. Soon it was cold and it was as dead as a doornail. And not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. Just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the cold dead ember and placed it back into the middle of the fire. Immediately it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said, thank you so much for your visit and especially for the fiery sermon. I shall be back in church next Sunday. In the case of a fire, not only does a single coal need the presence of the other coals, but the other coals need each other. What is your view of the church? When was the last time you thought about the church as a whole? 
Do you believe that your peace individually and that your prosperity are tied to the churches and that the church's peace and prosperity is tied to yours? Well, by way of background, the psalm of ascent, this is a psalm of ascents or the song of steps, or sometimes it's called the pilgrim songs. There's a set of 15 psalms beginning at Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134. And these were psalms that were sung as God's people traveled from various places to go to Jerusalem to make these required festivals that the Jews had. They were easy to sing in Hebrew. They are short. And they express a longing to be in God's presence in Jerusalem. Each one has a key word, has a theme, a repetition that goes through it, and most of them are cheerful. This psalm, in particular, was written by King David, as the divinely inspired title says, a song of the sense of David. Now, sometimes we throw out words like inspired that we don't quite understand, And I want us, as we read God's word, uh, his infallible, which what that means is it's incapable of making mistakes. It's inerrant, meaning that it is without error. And it's verbally, meaning every word is God-breathed, not just the ideas behind the words. And it's there's this word, plenarily inspired. And what that means is full. It means that every single word, every part is equally of divine origin and is authoritative in the original manuscripts, which we have translations of um, in our our scriptures. So whether we are in a gospel, whether in an epistle, whether we are today, like today in a psalm, we are hearing God. Let's give careful attention to its reading. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. And all God's people said, amen. So Psalm 122 starts off in verse 1 and says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, you know, sometimes we use words that have, in our mind, have these shadow meanings. You know what I mean? Like, you kind of know what they mean, but not really, you know, glad kind of sort of feels like happy. And so you sort of like, oh, it's happy or whatever. And But that vague idea kind of sometimes keeps us from understanding what's going on. The word glad actually is one of those words, I think. It doesn't mean happy, just raw happiness, because happiness is this feeling of pleasure. It's a feeling of contentment. What glad means in this context is being pleased or delighted, pleased or delighted, not just pleasure, right? You you get pleasure from eating a good meal, but this idea of, 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 of being pleased or delighted, it is a word that seems to express what happens before we become happy, right? Before the feeling that we get or before the feeling of contentment. The psalmist, after he has arrived in Jerusalem, reflects 
on the memory of the beginning of the journey. Remember, they traveled sometimes for quite some time. And so now, as he's there, he's reflecting back on the journey. And he expresses that when he was told, when he was told that it was time to take the trip to Jerusalem, he was pleased. He was delighted. He couldn't wait to go. In other words, it delighted him to know that it was time to go to his true home. The place where God's family goes to experience the presence of God. And now that he's here, he begins to express the wonder of having returned to the city where Yahweh's presence is. And so verses 2 to 4 a, continue, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, build us a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. So the psalmist now reflects upon the beauty and the wonder of the city as he walks up and as he sees the gates. He repeats Jerusalem twice, right in a row. He ends the sentence and he begins the, the next one. And as we see, he is expressing this deep feeling of wonder as he looks in the city. I mean, have you ever gone to a place where you're visiting or traveling and you get there and you just take a moment and you just look around and you're like, wow, it's beautiful. That's this idea uh, that he's, he has here. It's a beautiful city. He says, well, put well together. And it is filled with the 12 tribes of Israel. And they've all come up now to celebrate. But I think there's something incredible here that we can miss if we're not careful. It says the tribes of the Lord. Did you catch that? The tribes of the Lord. These tribes are not their own. They are Yahweh's tribes. They belong to him. They are his people. Do you remember the refrain you see throughout the Bible? I will be their God and you will be my people. So here we see that God's people are not their own. We know from 1 Corinthians that we are bought with a price. We are not our own. This is why the church, God's people, is, are actually so amazing to be with. They have been chosen by God. They have been bought by God. They are his construction. They are his work. And so they are beautiful. You as the church are beautiful. Do you know that? You are beautiful because you are the body of Christ. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. But the ultimate beauty, though, here isn't just the physical location or isn't just the people, but it ultimately is God himself. The reason they went up and the reason it was so beautiful was because God's presence was there in the tabernacle at the time of David. The very real tangible presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant Jerusalem is spoken of like this because it's where God's presence is. So God is the ultimate beauty. And what you need to understand, what I need to understand today is, is that in Christ, you are a part showing the beauty and wonder of God. So to be with you is to see the beauty of God and his wonder and his workmanship. 
Verse 4b continues, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And so now is the time when God has told all of his people to come together at the festival to give thanks to the Lord and to be reminded that God has redeemed them from their captivity. And God has made them his people. They are family, his family. It's like this big family reunion of all God's people. All of Yahweh's family are there. Everyone who's united to Christ gets an invitation. Nobody gets left out. Nobody has to sit in the corner by themselves. From the least to the greatest, all God's people are joining in to give thanks for his great redemption of them. They're meeting to celebrate their freedom from the bondage that they had in Egypt. Now, I'd like you to think about this for a moment. What are we doing on Sunday morning? We're celebrating. What are we celebrating? Our freedom. The freedom that we have been bought with a price by Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we have been set free, that he has redeemed us from the curse of the law and set us free to life of liberty and love and obedience to him in joy. That's what this is. It's a celebration. So coming glum, you know, C.S. Lewis, Lewis, and he writes in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Puddle Glum. You know, familiar with him. He's this guy, whoa, my, everything's bad. Or Eeyore, you know Eeyore. That, that's not a celebration. This is a celebration. We come with joy and enthusiasm in our hearts because we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We have been freed from the curse of sin and death, and we have been freed from the control of Satan. We are no longer servants of Satan. We are servants of Christ. And so when we consider the reality of how God's people are supposed to be, to love one another and live in union with Christ because of their redemption, this should evoke much happiness in us, much gladness in us. Though we know that family life is hard. I mean, family life is hard for you all, for me, for everyone, because it's people who are different. And when we get together and we're different, we struggle. And oftentimes we struggle with seeing things from different perspectives, right? Family life is hard. But even within the church, it's hard as well. The reality of what it should be and what it will be, the new heavens and the new earth should invoke much joy in us. It actually should allow us to kind of change the way we think and interact with each other, even when there's differences and troubles. What kind of emotions or feelings are evoked in you when you think about the Sunday morning gathering? Is it a chore? Is it like, oh my goodness, I have to get up. I have to get all these kids ready. So hard. Is it, or is it a delight to you? Do you delight in gathering with God's people and giving thanks to him? in seeing the visible manifestation of the body of Christ. We are called the body of Christ. This here is the visible manifestation of the body of Christ. That's what the world should see when they come in to our door or when we go out. They should see Christ in us, the hope of glory. They should see Christ's workmanship. 
Let's continue to verse five. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Jerusalem was the place where the king of Israel ruled. Judgments were pronounced and the nation of Israel would be mobilized for war to protect God's people. It was a place where people could go and to take their cases to the king, right? They could go to David and they could go later to Solomon and take their cases and be heard. And then a just judgment would be pronounced. It was a place where people could know that that if they were there, they were protected by the king. They were protected by the king's army. It was a place where they knew that peace would flow from. You know what? The church today should be no different. Jesus should be ruling our church by his spirit. And he should be the one who is making the judgments, and he should be the one who is leading us. As we are led by his spirit, his judgments flow through us, through his church. And so it is a beautiful thing to see how Christ rules and makes judgments in his church. Remember, Jesus in Luke 24 pointed out to the the disciples, and he showed them all the things in the law and the prophets and the writings that spoke of him. These are things that speak of Christ. In verse six, it continues, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. So here we are told that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But what is peace? What is peace? The Hebrew used here that we translate peace is, you've probably heard the word shalom. It carries this idea of freedom from disturbance, from any disturbance, whether outwardly, such as war in the world, or actually even inwardly as in our soul. Do you know that? When the peace that he is calling us to is not just this external peace, it's an internal peace as well, peace in our soul. And so we can think of this as kind of soundness or health or prosperity or wholeness. When the Bible speaks of peace, it's wholeness of the whole person. And ultimately, well-being in general with God and with man. And so God's people should pray for its peace, its wholeness, because from its peace or wholeness flow peace or wholeness to all the 12 tribes, to all of God's people, to those who love Jerusalem, who love the city of God. So now here's a question. What does it mean to love Jerusalem? Does it mean that God's people love Jerusalem, just the place, because it's such a great place? Or does it mean something deeper, that God's people love Jerusalem because of other reasons? And so I think there are two primary reasons that we love Jerusalem. And I'm not speaking of Jerusalem as the place in the Middle East, but I'm speaking of Jerusalem as the heavenly city and even the church today. First and foremost, God's presence. Isn't that what you all long for? I sure hope you do. I just want to see the face of my God in Jesus Christ. I, I, if I could just glimpse, get a glimpse of him. His presence is there. Second, God's people, his family are there. After all, in Ephesians 5, we read, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus loved his church, which is actually us, right? 
and all of God's people throughout all the ages. And so we can extrapolate that what we love as God's people is God himself and his people, our family. That's what we love. And so verses seven to eight continue, peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions sake, I will say peace be within you. If Jerusalem was secure, then from it would flow peace. And so they prayed for its peace. They prayed for its good. What this means for us today is that we pray for the church's peace and security. And as they did, as we do, not only would they and us in turn experience peace, but all of God's people would experience. As we experience peace here, our peace spreads to God's people in this place, but elsewhere, all those we we interact with. And that peace pushes out and pushes out. Our peace is intimately tied together. The whole church's peace is tied to this church's peace. So if this church is not in peace, then we're contributing to the lack of peace in the whole, and so on and so forth. And so what affects one affects all. This is critically important for us to see. Yahweh wants us to be concerned about all of his people's, all of his people's welfare. He wants to care about them, and he wants us to do what we can to help them know and experience peace themselves. He wants us to be instruments of peace, and those who seek our brothers and sisters good. I mean, can you imagine if we don't care about our family? I mean, we know that is in the real life that that's reprehensible, right? But as the family of Christ, if we don't care about each other, what in the world are we doing? It's a family, right? So today's rugged individualism, I can do it on my own because I don't need anybody of this individualism of the West, was completely unknown to the Hebrew people. They were a culture and society that lived together, that died together. What affected one affected all. Our rugged individualism has zero biblical support, zero. The ideology of individualism is actually satanic. It has no place in a Christian. It has no place in the church. This is something that we must repent of, for it is sinful and is of the world. It is of the flesh, and we must cast that off by the renewing of our mind. And so at its core, Christianity is a life of dependence and helplessness, relying on God and relying on each other. There's no reason to, you know, sometimes you think and you wonder about Acts 2 as they sold all their goods and they had everything in common and and all that. I mean, we don't have to do it today. That's not legislated or mandated as law, but they did that because they understood there was a lot of persecution going on. There's a lot of things going on and they were helping one another. They didn't want to see a single person be poor and needy and struggling because that's how much they loved each other because they were bought with a price. Because they were bought by the blood of Jesus. Because every person mattered. Because Christ's precious blood was spilled for them. So how can you let that person, like, go hungry? We are all united to Christ. We are all one body. So what affects one of us affects all of us. We have no right to be unconcerned about our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are being killed, who are being persecuted. And so how much worse is it 
to ignore our brothers and sisters who are right in front of our faces in our towns, in our neighborhoods, in our churches? How can we turn a blind eye to the greater Christian community that we are united to in Christ? We must pray for them, their peace, and we must give to them and, the, and help them as we're able. Finally, in verse 9, it says this, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. We're told that David and really all of God's people should seek Jerusalem's good for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. What does it mean? Well, David and all God's people should seek the good of the house of Yahweh, it says, our Elohim. Yahweh, I am, Elohim, God, creator. So he's kind of doubling it up. The great I am who never changes. And oh, by the way, the creator. The house of Yahweh, our Elohim, of the I am, our creator, in David's time was still the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where the presence of God dwelled with man. And so in John 1.14, though, we read, speaking of Jesus, this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God. I will seek your good. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good. Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle. It is for his sake that we seek the good of the church. Not for yours or mine, first and foremost, but for Christ's sake. Because he is the one who took on flesh and tabernacled with us. Listen to this. The true tabernacle Jesus is the one who we should do everything for. Everything. And so Ephesians 5, I think 25 to 27 is helpful. It expresses what it means to seek the good of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We are to pray and for, and we are to work in the church with the same desire and goal as Jesus, to see his bride, the church, be without spot or wrinkle. In other words, we are to endeavor to not only not cause trouble in it, because that's, you know, very first off, you, you know, if you're seeking the good, you don't cause trouble, right? That's the first part. But we are also to make sure that others within the church also don't cause trouble as well. Seeking the good is this holistic thing. We don't cause trouble. We make sure others aren't causing trouble. And we live and we work for peace, right? So our desire should be to see God's people, our true family, be living in unity in Christ Jesus. So now, how do we apply this? How do we, how do we land this thing? Okay. Jesus put an end to the need or to the desire for an earthly Jerusalem and an earthly kingdom. He came and said that a time is coming that we will worship anywhere in spirit and in truth. That time was at the conclusion of his life and his sacrifice upon the cross. Then and there in Jerusalem, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom by God himself. 
and thereby expressing that all had free access to God, not through the temple in Jerusalem, but through Jesus Christ, the true temple. And so in judgment then, some 35 or so years after Jesus' death, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Never to be needed, never to be traveled again, never to be spoken of in the same way that it is in here, Psalm 122. Because the temple came to live with us. No, the temple came to live in us. We, the people of God, are the temple of God. We are all united to Christ. And so it can be said, as Jesus said, that now where two or three are gathered together in his name for his purposes, Jesus is there with them. He is the true temple. He is the fulfillment of all that Israel longed for. He is the true king. He is the one who sits on the heavenly throne and judges. He gives us his spirit. And we then, through his spirit, can pronounce judgments toward one another and toward the world. He is the one who sits as the true heir of David on the eternal throne of God in the true city of God. And now we as God's temple, as God's house, are bound firmly together in Christ as he is the chief cornerstone who holds all of us together. We are all part of the body of Christ that is knit together by Christ, making us one new person serving Christ's purposes. And Jesus Christ, as the scripture says in Ephesians 2.14, has killed the hostility between us. Listen to this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What did Jesus do? He killed the hostility between you and me, between you and each other. He killed it. Jesus did. If it's there, it's because we're not letting Jesus rule over us, right? If we have hostility towards one another, if I have hostility towards you, if you have hostility towards me, that means that someone else is ruling and it ain't ain't Jesus. It's you or me or Satan. So we have to Live with this reality that through the body, through his body, through the cross, he has killed our hostility. And so we pray and we strive for our brothers and sisters to have peace. Because together, all those united to Christ are one body. And so we seek the peace of our body, who is under our ultimate head, Jesus Christ, who is our peace. Jesus has amazingly and awesomely united us to him through his death and resurrection. And so we seek the good of all those who are united to Christ. And we delight that we have been granted to be a part of this beautiful body. You know what's exciting for me is that I get to be a part of this beautiful body of you all who have been redeemed by Christ. This is a beautiful city, the church. It's supposed to be a beautiful city. And so we should live and strive to see it thrive because as it thrives, we thrive. All of us thrive together. Do you remember or know 
the membership questions of the this church of the PCA. There's question four and five, which are very apropos. I want to read them. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And now listen. Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Did you hear that? Doesn't that sound a whole lot like Psalm 122? My question to you and I today is this. What are we doing individually to seek the peace of the church? Are we praying for the peace of this church? Are we willing to be reconciled with others if they've harmed us? Are we living in peace with others in the church? See, doing these things is what it means to seek the peace and purity of the church. And so to fulfill the, what we see in Psalm 122, what do we need to do? We need to pray for the peace of the church. We need to live out that peace as we see one another, as those who are beautifully united to Christ and putting aside our differences, working for the kingdom of Christ and working together to show this world that does not know what peace is, our peace. Do you know Jesus? In John 13, if you want to know how to make disciples in this world and how to see people converted, they have to know Jesus, right? Would you all agree with that? Jesus said, by this, men will know that you are my disciples. How? By their love, one for another. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. New doesn't mean that it like it wasn't already existing. The, 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 the Ten Commandments were summarized by Jesus. Love Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus' new commandment means he's like, I'm amping it up a notch. I'm amping it up. Love. Love each other. And the world will know. They will know our peace as we have peace in Christ, united to Christ. Let me pray. Father, all glorious. Lord Jesus, beautiful beyond comprehension, Holy Spirit, magnificent and wonderful. We come to you and we are asking for your help because we cannot live this peace. We cannot live in unity apart from your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit upon this body that this body would know the peace that passes all understanding in Christ, and that this body would have a unity that can only be known as a unity that comes from their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So would you be with us, and would you help us to walk this out this week as we pray for one another, as we pray with one another, and as we live in humbleness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.